Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're kind of in the middle of now a five-part series of putting off and putting on. And so if you've been with us for any time, you know that we've been working through this great epistle of Ephesians, and we've gotten into this section 4, chapter 4, where we're being taught how to put off old sinful behaviors and how to put on righteous God-honoring behaviors. And so I decided that we would take our time, work through this a little slowly, uh, so that we could uh, take time to really examine each one of these. And so this morning, we're talking about be ye angry and sin not. Be ye angry and sin not. And this morning, we'll just be looking at verses 26 and 27. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 reads like this. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help this morning to understand the imperatives behind this text of what it means to be angry and sin not. Would you help us understand your holy word? Would you enlighten us by your spirit? Would you humble us by your truth? Would you clarify for us who you are and how you want us to imitate your character in every fiber of our being? We pray for your help today, God. We pray that you would be magnified and that you would help us to apply this true principle of putting off and putting on as it relates to anger in our life, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, was angered by an army officer who accused him of favoritism. Stanton complained to President Lincoln, who suggested that Stanton write the officer a sharp letter. Stanton did, and showed the strongly worded missive to the president. What are you going to do with it? Lincoln inquired. Surprised, Stanton replied, well, I'm going to send it. Lincoln shook his head. You don't want to send that letter, he said. Put it in the stove. That's what I do when I've written a letter when I'm angry. It's a good letter, and you had a good time writing it and feel better. Now burn it and write another. Close quote. Well, maybe you can relate to that story a little bit. Maybe something infuriated you in your life, and you've written a few letters in your day that maybe you had the wisdom maybe not to send until you dealt with your own heart a little more and then rewrite it. Or maybe you've had an email that you wanted to fire off to somebody at work or a distant family member to tell them what you really thought about what they said. I hope that you had the strength and the courage to re-examine maybe if you are sending that with a pure motive or with a sinful motive. Let me ask you a question this morning as we dive into this topic of anger. What, what kind of things make you angry? I mean, what is it that just pushes your button to get you really riled up? Do you get angry when you're caught in a traffic jam? How about if your car were to break down or you run out of gas or have a flat tire? Or how about when you lock your keys in your car? Does that make you angry? Do you get angry when your kids wake you up at night? If you have little toddlers, they wet the bed, they have an accident yet again while you're working with them diligently for potty training. Remember those days, some of you older parents, those days still happen, right? For those with younger kids, do you get angry when your kids have a messy room or they don't do their homework properly or they nag you constantly at the end of every evening meal saying, mom, what's for dessert? What's for dessert? What are we going to have for dessert? 
Do you get angry when your teacher gives you uh, too much homework? When maybe your teacher gets on to you for something you didn't do in a class discussion or gives you a bad grade on on an essay that you felt like is pretty subjective and that you wrote a pretty good essay, but you got a low mark? Or do you get angry at work when your boss condemns you about something that wasn't really your fault or will not let you out of work when you need to have some time off for a family vacation or another important event? Or uh, does your boss ever give you uh, more work, like double your workload without really increasing your pay? Or do you get angry, wives, when your husband doesn't pick up his clothes off the floor again or he spends all of his free time, it seems, hanging out with his buddies or, or somehow enjoying his hobby. Or he doesn't really treat you like that princess anymore. Do you get angry with your wife when she forgets to turn off the lights? When she doesn't wash all your clothes, have them ready for you? When she serves meatloaf for dinner again? Do you get angry when she invites your in-laws over for Thanksgiving and Christmas every year without asking you first? Do you get angry when you get here at church and you drop off your kids at the nursery, but there's nobody there to receive the kids? Or do you get angry when maybe the worship service doesn't go exactly as planned or there's another change in the schedule? Or do you get angry when the pastor's message is just too long? Let's be honest this morning, right? Well, if you've ever gotten angry about any of these events or anything else, I've got great news for you this morning. We have the privilege of learning from Dr. Lynn Namka, a licensed psychologist who has come up with some great therapies of how to deal with your anger. In her article, Letting Go of Anger, Just Poke It, she gives 17 things you can do when you're angry. You want to hear them? Number one, think about what upsets you, how upset you are, a little, some, or quite a bit. Number two, gently tap on the inside of your little fingernail with the nail of the finger of your other hand. Tap 15 times. Number three, tap your collarbone lightly 12 to 15 times. You guys want to do this with me? We can do some therapy together. <laughs> Number four, tap on, your, tap on the back of your hand between the knuckles of your little finger and your ring finger. That's right there. All right, just tap on that, okay? Number five, keep tapping. Close your eyes. Now open your eyes. Is the anger starting to go away? Okay, number six, look down to the right. Keep tapping on the back of your hand through step 12. Look down to the left. These eye movements put information in different parts of the brain. That's nice to know. Number eight, roll your eyes in a large circle. Number nine, roll your eyes in a big circle in the other direction. Number 10, hum any tune, a creative task to put information in the right side of the brain. Number 11, count to five, the linear task to put information into the left side of the brain. Number 12, hum a tune again. Number 13, think about the angry situation. How upset are you now? A little, some, or a lot? Number 14, tap on the inside of your little finger again, 12 to 15 times. Number 15, tap on your collarbone, 12 to 15 times. Number 16, take a deep breath, stretch, sigh, and let it go. Now how angry are you? Number 17, say, I forgive, you fill in the blank. I know he or she did the best they could do three times while tapping across the palm of your hand. That's it. 
That's what she has to offer for therapy for anger management. Now, in all seriousness, some psychologists are much better and give some very helpful general things to say about controlling your anger before anger controls you. But let me just cut to the quick about all of it. Most of the time, the anger that you and I feel is probably sinful anger. And if we're experiencing sinful anger, we have a choice to make in that situation because the only person in the world who can make you angry is you. It's yourself by making a choice to respond to the situation, either in a God-honoring way that would bring him glory or in a dishonoring way to God that would bring shame upon your own sinful response. And so there is really only one option that you have this morning to help you with your anger, and that option is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one who will ever be able to help you deal with your anger. And it has to do with first, obviously, coming to a point where you see your anger for what it is as sin. You confess your anger before the Lord. You ask God to remove that sinful anger out of your heart and to replace it with something that will honor him. We need help learning this morning about how to put off unholy anger, and to start some holy habits in our life in its place. And so this morning, we're talking about anger. And as you probably guessed, the old King James says in this verse, Ephesians 4.26, be ye angry and sin not. Now, if you'll remember in the section of Ephesians where we are uh, being challenged right now, we're, we're in the second half where our conduct is supposed to match our calling. That's kind of the section that we're in. And we looked at verses 1 through 16 where Paul discussed walking in unity. And we're now in verses 17 through 32 where he's now talking about how to walk in holiness. And a few weeks ago, we examined verses 17 to 24 about learning how we used to walk like the Gentiles walked. And we had a strong reprimand in that passage that we are no longer to walk that way because we have now learned Christ, right? Verse 20 says, but this is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him, were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So now that we're no longer walking as the Gentiles because we've been regenerated by the grace of God, we've been saved, it's assumed that we're learning more about Christ and that part of that learning is we're putting off, we're going through the process now of sanctification, putting off and putting on. And so verses 22 through 24 read, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then what Paul does in verses 25 to 32 is he gives us five specific things that we can put off and put on something else in its place. The first one we talked about last week, it was lying, where he says in verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. This morning, we're going to talk about anger, about the fact that we are called to be angry and yet not sin. Now, in each one of these, there's a negative command, don't do this. Then there's a positive command, do this instead. And then there's a rationale explaining why. Why is it that we should get rid of that old habit and put on a new habit? What's the rationale behind it? This is the only one of the five where he actually gives the positive command first. 
And then he gives the negative command and then the rationale. So for the rest of them, it's negative, positive rationale. This is the only one that's actually positive, negative, and then the rationale. So that'll be the order of our main points this morning, if you will, as we look into this subject of what it means to be angry and sin not. We'll first look, because we're just going to follow the text here, of what the positive command is. So if you're taking notes this morning, we're there in our first major heading. The positive command is actually, get this, be angry. It's exactly what he tells us here in verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. So according to this verse, sometimes it's okay to be angry. I mean, if he's commanding us and it's considered a positive command, what we're actually being told in this verse is not only is it okay to be angry at times, it's actually commanded by God. Anger is a natural emotion to the human being because we are created in the image of God with the capacity to experience godly anger. This word for anger means to provoke to anger or to irritate. It can also mean to be furious. And this word for anger is in the verb form and it's actually in the imperative, which again is why we say there's a command here to be angry. Now, if you're listening this morning, you might be thinking, what are you talking about? Or you might be thinking, that's great. I'm excited about this sermon. Finally, somebody's telling me it's okay to be angry. I mean, last week you told us you're never more like God than when you're speaking the truth. And this week you're telling us you're never more like God than when you're angry. Well, not exactly but to some degree. And so let's explain that. That's exactly what we're talking about this morning to make sure we're walking a very fine line of what Paul is challenging us with this command to be angry. There's a great difference between righteous indignation and sinful anger. Righteous indignation is when you are selflessly angry against sin because it infringes upon the glory of God. I didn't put that in the notes, I probably should have, but that's a good definition uh, written by yours truly of righteous indignation. When you are selflessly angry against sin because it infringes upon the glory of God. Sinful anger, on the other hand, is when you are selfishly angry against sin because it infringes upon your own glory or comfort. So there's a difference between whether or not the motive behind your anger is because somebody has sinned against God and his glory or somebody has sinned against you and your glory or your own comfort. Let me try to illustrate this if I can. On December the 16th of last year, no less than 132 school children were murdered by terrorists in Pakistan. The Taliban burst into an auditorium where a large number of students were taking an exam and they gunned them down in a matter of minutes. How does that make you feel? How should the Christian respond to that? Should we just say, oh well, looks like somebody else died in the world today. What do you want for breakfast, dear? Or is it appropriate in a godly way to get angry? to get angry at the fact that innocent children were murdered for the glory of the devil? Is that something that should make us angry, or should we feel no emotion at all? 
what should the Christian response be to that? I believe that this text teaches us and that the Bible in general teaches us that we should get angry about those kind of things with righteous indignation, not with sinful anger. Remember, righteous anger is simply an appropriate response of emotion towards an atrocity like that, where sinful anger would lead to bitterness, unforgiveness, and revenge. There's a clear difference between the two. We are commanded to do one, but we are forbidden to do the other. That's what the text is about. Be angry, but not in a sinful way. You've got to be angry, but not in a way where you actually commit sin. Let me show you a couple places in the Bible where God actually got angry. That's what we're talking about, righteous indignation. No better example than in the character of God himself. And so here we're talking about your, next, your first blank, maybe, in your bulletin would be uh, times when God has been angry. Number one, God was angry with Solomon when his heart turned away. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, we read about how, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. So obviously in that text, you know the story of Solomon. He was uh, David's son. He's in the line of Christ. He's supposed to be building the temple, which he did. The Shekinah glory of God fills the temple. He's, he's told to worship God and worship God only, but he's eventually led astray. And he's led astray by women and by maybe even a love of money. Even though he had great wisdom, he didn't always apply it. Certainly not in this case, because now the Lord is angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. Well, surely this is not sinful anger of God. It's righteous indignation for Solomon's sin. Maybe another example would be when God was angry, was number two, God was angry with Israel about idolatry and child sacrifice. 2 Kings 17, 18 uh, talks about that, a little greater part of the context. We read, and they abandoned, talking about Israel, all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves and they made an Asherah and worshiped all the host of heaven and served Baal. So here are the children of Israel, not worshiping God, but committing idolatry, worshiping Asherah and Baal. The next verse says, and they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Pretty serious act of the judgment of God against Israel who provoked him to anger because of their idolatry and because of their child sacrifice. And God dealt with them appropriately by punishing them, even wiping them out because God was very angry with Israel. The truth is, number three, God is angry at sin every day. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 7, 11. Psalm 7, 11. God is angry at sin every day. God is a righteous judge, Psalm 7, 11 says, and a God who feels indignation 
every day. So the truth is, every single day, God is angry at sin that is going on in the world. Our God is a God filled with love. And our God is a God filled with mercy. And our God is a God who is a joyful God. But our God is also a God of wrath and of judgment and of anger and indignation against sin, according to Psalm 711, every day. Not sometimes. Not just in the real bad accounts of idolatry and child sacrifice, but every day our God is an angry God. Try preaching that next time you share the gospel with somebody. See how they want to respond. Isn't it the famous sermon of Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of a angry God. It's true. It certainly does not smear God's character. It is good. It is righteous. It is right for God to be angry at these things. Not only was God angry at times in the Bible, as we've seen, but also was the Son of God, Jesus. Your next blank says, times when Jesus has been angry. Not only has God been angry, but Jesus in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, has been angry. Number one, Jesus was angry at the Pharisees who revered the Sabbath over the Savior. Turn with me to Mark 3, Mark chapter 3, where it specifically says, using this same word here, that Jesus was angry at these Pharisees. Let me start maybe with verse 1 of chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and he watched. they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, this is the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill? But they were silent. Here's the verse, verse 5. And he looked around them with, what? Anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. In this situation, Jesus was angry at some of the Pharisees who revered the Sabbath over the Savior. They cared more about keeping their own interpretation of the Mosaic Covenant and remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy, thinking somehow the Sabbath and their understanding of it was more holy than Christ. So they were going to judge Christ for doing good on the Sabbath by healing this man because they considered it a work. These people had become self-righteous, and Jesus was angry at them. Number two, turn with me to John 2, 15. The word anger is not used here, but we could certainly say Jesus was angry at the Jews who had turned the temple into a place of profit. Again, the word anger is not used, but the story itself, I believe, helps uh, paint a picture of this same type of appropriate righteous indignation which Jesus felt. In John chapter 2, I'll start reading in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. 
Now, again, the word anger is not used, but I believe that that certainly is a picture of an appropriate action of righteous indignation, obviously, by the Lord Jesus Christ, who never sinned. Number three, one more example would be Jesus was angry when he answered the synagogue official by calling him and others hypocrites. Luke chapter 13 talks about how now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had, been, who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to the water to water it? And Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So again, Jesus was angry. Again, the word's not used in the text, but I really believe, again, this is an appropriate picture of righteous indignation where he would speak with such authority to these hypocrites, calling them such. And you've got to keep in mind, God created us in his image. He created us to be imitators of God. I mean, we just read how in verse 24, back to Ephesians 4, 24, we're to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God. So when he says in here, be angry, and as we read some of these other passages about the character of God and the character of Jesus Christ, certainly God wants us to follow him in these same parameters of righteous indignation. God created us to be imitators of himself. Every feeling and every emotion we experience is supposed to teach us something about God. So when we get angry at sin, if it's possible, in a righteous indignation sort of way, that's teaching us a little bit about how God feels about that sin, and it can be very appropriate. And with that in mind, that's why I suggest here in the next point in your outline, there are times when it is appropriate for you to be angry. There are times when it is appropriate for you to be angry. Number one, when you are angry at what makes God angry. That's kind of what this passage is all about. We're right here where the command is given, be angry. Every commentary I read on this passage, 15 of them, takes this position that it is right And God-honoring for us to be angry in a righteous indignation kind of way. There are some in evangelicalism who would say there's never a time when you could ever be angry at all, zero. But 15 out of 15 that I read this week uh, said agreed with this position that, no, this is pretty clear. The whole idea is here's the command of what not to do. Here's the command of what to do. And in the context, it would be really hard to say, no, 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 there's never a time. So I believe that there is a time to get angry, and you can get angry at what God gets angry about. That's what, again, the passage is all about. That's the whole point. Number two, when you are angry at those who mock God. When you are angry at those who mock God. Turn with me, if you will, to a familiar psalm, Psalm chapter 139. I would say a favorite psalm for many of us. If you had to pick a psalm, no doubt this would come up in a room full of favorites, 
more often or as often as any other psalm. Psalm 23 might win out, but Psalm 139 would certainly be a close second for many who say, I just love Psalm 139 because it talks about how I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It talks about the knowledge of God. It talks about how he searches us and he knows us. And from the highest heights to the lowest lows, I can't even contain and attain the knowledge of God. Verse 14, I praise you again, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, for my frame was not hidden from you. Uh, When I was in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Beautiful psalm, isn't it? Created, wonderfully made, the knowledge of God, how precious are God's thoughts. And then comes verses 19 through 22. Did you remember? This also is in your favorite psalm, Psalm 139, written by David himself, where we read here, starting in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We call this section of this psalm and other psalms like it imprecatory psalms where the author of the psalm inspired by God is fully appropriate to call out God's judgment on evil. There's a time when it may be appropriate. Now when we pray for our enemies, I do pray that God would grant them forgiveness, repentance, open their eyes to the gospel, save them by your grace but I do believe it's appropriate in, with fear and trembling to say, and God, if they don't repent, we pray that you would give them their due. I mean, there's a way to pray it that's a God-honoring way, and there's a way maybe to pray it where only maybe God knows your heart if you're sinfully angry or you're exalting the righteousness and holiness of God, and in doing so, those who are not following God or those who are mocking God are being condemned. There's a time when this may be appropriate. Or one last example of you getting angry in an appropriate way would be this. Number three, when you are angry at your own sinful behavior. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This would be another appropriate place is when you are angry at your own sinful behavior. You say, Adam, I don't know about that. All right, well, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul is dealing with the doctrine of repentance. What it means to put off and put on. What it means to put off worldly sorrow and put on godly sorrow. In 2 Corinthians 7:10, for godly grief or sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly sorrow or grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. So it begins to explain here the difference between worldly sorrow, godly sorrow. And in verse 11, it talks about what genuine repentance looks like. You ought to experience some earnestness, some godly grief, uh, what eagerness to clear yourself. Next phrase, what indignation. Now, it's not the exact same word again for anger, but it's synonymous to that word. 
And it's telling us we ought to have some indignation in our own heart towards the sins that we've been struggling with. It's the prayer that we often pray, God, help me to hate sin like you hate it. I want to have indignation or anger at that kind of sin because, God, I want you to do a work in me. I want you to grant me fear of you, longing for righteousness, zeal for holiness. That's what I want, God, but I got to learn to hate my sin like you hate it. That's an appropriate example of righteous indignation. You hate your sin like God hates it. Now, the exact word for anger there, again, isn't the same word used, but the connotation seems to be very similar. So that's the positive command. Those are areas where it's appropriate to be angry, but let's just be honest this morning. I believe that nine out of ten times, possibly 99 times out of 100, when we're dealing with anger, we're not keeping it on the righteous path, and we quickly take it off that righteous road to bitterness, sinful anger, revenge. Let's get back at. I'm mad at you. And so we've got to deal certainly with that because I believe that's where most of us really struggle. So that's where the negative command comes up. Number two in the larger uh, outline here, the negative command is put off sinful anger. Put off sinful anger. Again, verse 26, uh, verse uh, 26 says, be angry and do not sin. And so as we talk about this idea of putting off sinful anger, let me give you three lies about anger, okay? This is adapted from David Pallison, well-known biblical counselor's pamphlet in our resource center on anger. As I was studying this, I'm just like, oh, I'm going to see what he says. So I adapted some things that were said there, but in that pamphlet, I found it very helpful where he gave these three lies about anger. Number one, some people say commonly, have you heard it? I can't, what? Control my anger. I, I just can't control it. I was born this way. I mean, I was born maybe with that, with that temperament of being angry. I, was, I grew up in an angry household. My mom was always angry, or my dad was always angry, or I'm of a certain ethnicity, which is known for a fiery response. And so you have that idea of like, I just can't control it. That's just how we are. That's just, that's just how our people are. We get angry. Well, be careful, because that's a lie. You can control your anger through the power of the gospel. Let me explain a little bit here. Maybe number one, anger is not a thing. It is a moral act. It's not a thing of just like this thing in you that you can't control. It's a moral act. Listen to what Pallison writes again in that pamphlet. In Western culture, many theories of anger treat it as if it were an emotional fluid that builds up pressure inside and must be released. This hydraulic theory of anger contributes to the pop wisdom that anger just is and is neither good or bad. Why does this theory seem plausible, he asks? Because images such as the following capture what anger can feel like. And he gives a couple of images here. A person's anger can be pent up. His pump is primed. People can be boiling mad or filled with anger waiting to explode. They blow off steam. Old unresolved anger can be stored up inside, harbored for decades. If you don't get it off your chest so that your anger is spent, then you're not going to ever feel better. All of these metaphors depict anger as a pressurized substance inside of us. Close quote. Well, you and I know that's just simply not true. 
I mean, anger is an emotion, and I told you every emotion is supposed to teach us something about God, but anger often leads to a moral act where you and I make a decision to do something sinful with it if we go that path instead of the righteous path. Matthew 5, we don't have time to turn to every passage here uh, for the sake of time, but I'm just going to read a couple of these to you here in Matthew 5, 21 through 22. You have heard it said of old, you shall not murder And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say that everyone who is, what? Angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus is talking here about sinful anger. is the same thing as murder. If you have habitual sinful anger that you're not repenting of, you're even going to go to hell. He said it's liable for the hells of fire. And so anger, like any sin, has to be repented of. And we can't live an unrepentant life of anger or we're not bearing fruit of what it means to be a Christian. We also see that, number two, anger is not caused by the devil or demons, right? How many times have we heard and we mock almost as Christians that phrase, well, the devil made me do it. Well, it's just not true. The devil didn't make you do it because he doesn't have control over you. None of you're a Christian. None of you're in Christ. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in your faith. You can resist the devil. Sure, he's going to tempt you. He's big and he's bad. But you've got the gospel of Christ who's changed you, that is enabling you to put off sinful anger and in its place, righteous indignation. You also need to know that, number three, anger is not caused by someone else. It's not caused by someone else. We might blame not only the devil, we might be tempted to blame someone else, right? Turn with me to James 4. James chapter 4 addresses this maybe in thematically. James chapter 4, what causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, your passions are at war within you, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now connect that again with what Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. When we are angry, that's the same thing as murdering. So here James is saying when, when, you, ha- when you desire and don't have, it's like you're getting murderously angry at them. Here, here's the cause of quarrels and fights. It's not the other person. Notice it's you. When you get into an argument and a quarrel and a fight, the first thing you should stop and say, you know what? The problem's me. The problem's me. I thought thought my whole life it was like, you make me so angry when you say this or say that or push my button or you did this. And maybe even what the other person did was sin. Maybe they lied about you or stabbed you in the back or mocked you or hurt you in the sense of they, that was their intention. It was a sinful intention. But you still have the ability in that moment to say, you know what, I'm going to choose to forgive. I'm, I'm going to choose to love them. I'm going to turn the other cheek. I, I'm going I'm to say to them what Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The problem is so many times we think that other people make us angry, right? We think, well, you make me so mad when you say that. Well, time out. No, you make yourself mad. Remember, the only person in the world who can make you angry is you. Because you have a choice in that moment to respond in a God-honoring way or to dishonor God by responding sinfully. 
Let's look at a second lie about anger. Number two, or B there in your outline, I can't help the fact I'm angry at God. Okay? Some people would say, well, I just can't help it. I'm, I'm upset right now, and I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm angry at God. Number one, watch out. If that's, that's a lie, by the way. You, you can't help it because you've got to watch out for self-focused expectations. Watch out for self-focused expectations. What I'm getting at there is simply there's the story in John 21 about Peter says, what about that disciple? Jesus is saying, hey, you guys are going to all die. And then, well, what about that one, Lord? He's pointing to John, and Jesus is like, well, what's that to you? If I want him to live to the rest of his life, then that's between me and him. In other words, you, you can't be so self-focused in expecting fair treatment from God. So you can help the fact that you're getting angry at God by not having these self-focused expectations, but rather resting in the sovereign, uh, sovereign history of God and whatever he ordains. Or I could also say maybe watch out for self-pity exaggerations. What do you mean by that, Adam? You're getting a little tricky with your words there. Well, I just mean sometimes we may say, well, I just can't help it. I'm under such pressure. I've got to give in to the temptation of being angry, where we all know 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. God is faithful, not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but in the temptation, he will provide a way of escape. You can overcome this kind of sinful anger, even at God, because God will give you the ability. So don't exaggerate your situation beyond the grace that God provides to overcome it. Number three, watch out for self-righteous exoneration. Here, Job eventually exonerated himself by thinking that God was unrighteous, where that passage in Job talks about how Job justified himself rather than God. So while Job hung in there for a long time, he did finally sin against God by considering himself as justified rather than God. And so at the end of the book, Job finally repents and says, what am I of such a small account? What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. In other words, Job quit trying to exonerate himself and just understood, you know, I don't need to be angry at God. I need to accept what God's doing for his own glory and holiness, and that I'm the one who's in sin. So you can help getting angry at God by considering the real truth of what's going on in that situation. Here's the third lie about anger. See, I can't stop getting angry at myself. And some people would tell that lie to themselves. Well, I just can't help it. I kept getting angry at myself. Number one, stop trying to live up to your own standard. Sometimes we get angry at ourselves because we're legalists who add things to God's word and we get angry when we don't live it out perfectly. Matthew 11 talks about, come unto me all who are laboring and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Rest in the gospel. You can't do more than what God has called you to do. It could live up to you getting angry at yourself. For number two, stop trying to please the wrong judge. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Sometimes the fear of man makes us angry because we're constantly under the pressure about what other people think about what we're doing or not. So we've got to stop living uh, for the wrong judge. We live for God, not for others. Number three, stop trying to forgive yourself. Some people today, it's really popular to say, well, I've forgiven others, but I just can't forgive myself. They get that, by the way, from the great commandment and the second great commandment. They've added a third great commandment. Remember the second great commandment says, love others as yourself. So some people in the psychologized world would say, well, that means there's a third great commandment. You've got to love yourself. And some people would say, you know, I, I just, I just got to, but I can't. I can't love myself. Look, the problem is not that you need to love yourself more. The problem is you already love yourself too much. 
So don't try to hang, have this pity party about, I've got to forgive myself. No, if you confess your sins to God, 1 John 1, 9 says, says that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't hold yourself to a higher standard than God does. Repent, move on. It's a lie that you can't be angry, can't get over being angry at your sin. You can through the gospel. Let's move on to this rationale given. Number three, why is it that we should be angry and yet sin not? Number three, the rationale given here is this. Sinful anger gives the devil a foothold. It gives the devil a foothold. Notice the second part of verse 26 there again says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And so here in in, uh, your next blank there, A, do not let the sun go down on your anger. If you do let the sun go down on your anger, then you've given the devil a beachhead to come and to directly implement war on you in your life. And so the idea is you can't give him an opportunity. You can't give him a foothold. We do so if that anger continues. And so this word anger here used at the end of verse 26 instead of the beginning is not in the verb form. It's actually in the noun form. It's understood here as exasperation or even violent anger. It's the state of being intensely provoked, even festering anger. So the idea here is that if there's an appropriate righteous indignation, that's possible. We talked about that already. But be careful that that doesn't grow into a state or a condition in your heart or in your mind as a noun. Now that begins to characterize you. The time is getting longer. The sun is going down and you're still angry if that's you then it gives the devil an opportunity. So here at the end of verse 26, he's clearly talking about the sinful anger, which has been building up inside of you and eating away at your heart like acid inside of a cup that would eat the lining of the cup. And this is why the Bible teaches, number one, keep short accounts. Keep short accounts, right? Love is not resentful. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love, and NIV says, keeps no record of wrongs. So we need to deal with it daily. Number two, be the first one to ask for forgiveness, right? Matthew 5 says, if you know that your brother has something against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go and make it right with them. We don't want to give the devil an opportunity Right? We want to confess our anger immediately. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I know Lisa and I work hard at this, where there are times we get sinfully angry at one another, and we're committed to this principle. Notice the principle doesn't say that you have to resolve the conflict completely before nightfall, but it does say resolve the anger. You understand the difference? Sometimes the situation will need some more time and effort, but you can't go to bed sinfully angry. Or the idea here is even against the night setting, some in the Jewish calendar know the day starts as soon as the night comes. So sometimes we think of the night as like, okay, before midnight or whatever, we're going to stay up to 3 a.m. Well, in the Hebrew mindset, as soon as the sun set, you, you now have been angry too long. The idea there is as soon as possible, as soon as possible, resolve the anger. Again, there may be a complicated situation that needs more attention, but don't be sinfully angry. Be the first one to ask for forgiveness. Make it a little fun competition. Which one of you could come to the other and say, hey, honey, you know what? You're right. Please forgive me. Uh, I don't want to be that way. Because if you're not being that way, 
B, your next blank says, says again, do not give the devil an opportunity. That's what verse 27 is all about. Don't let the sun go down on your anger because the rationale is then you've given this opportunity to the devil. The idea here is, number one, outwit Satan by seeking forgiveness and by forgiving. We shouldn't let Satan get advantage on us, but we can outwit him. 2 Corinthians says it that way. In 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11 Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, that I, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. So the idea here is that we know Satan's plans. We're not going to let him outwit us. We're going to outwit him. Or number two, we're going to overcome evil with good. That's what Romans 12 is all about. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. You know what the opposite of Ephesians 4.27 is? Do not give place for the devil. The opposite is Romans 12.19. Rather, give place to God. Give place to God. Let him have the vengeance that he will in his time. Not you. If you do it, you're giving the devil an opportunity in a sense, the opposite of that is Romans 12, 19, where you leave it up to God. You give God an opportunity by trusting in him to take care of it in the way that he wants to. Well, a couple of take-home applications would be this. Have you ever excused your anger, blaming it on someone else? Maybe in light of this sermon, you need to take a long look at the habit that you may have formed of getting angry and thinking, well, my kids make me angry. My boss makes me angry. My spouse makes me angry. Have you ever excused your anger, blaming it on someone else? You need to repent of that this day. And take another look at James 4 and realize that the problem is within you. You can't overcome through the gospel. Number two, have you ever confused your anger thinking that you were justified? I'm getting at, have you ever excused your sinful anger, and thought it was righteous indignation. Because remember, there's a fine line between the two, and, and maybe you're experiencing way too much righteous indignation, and you should be uh, uh, realizing some of that's actually not righteous. It's sinful. You need uh, God's help through these scriptures and through maybe other people to help you discern the difference. Or number three, are you ready to remove your anger by getting to the root of the problem? Right? There's always... And an idol of the heart. Anger's not the problem. You understand? There's something going on under there that you didn't get what you wanted, and so then you got angry. So that's the big difference that's going on that we've got to consider. What's the root of the problem? Deal with that. Anger will go away on its own. There's a lot to think about, more than we could tackle, about what it means to be ye angry and sin not. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at this text as we try to prepare our hearts now for communion, knowing, God, that maybe in a message like this that there's lots of areas for us to grow. I pray, God, that as we've reserved the Lord's table for last, that you would allow us in these moments to prepare our hearts by repenting of our sin, by determining in our heart to make things right with others and right with you. 
bless this time of the Lord's table. Be exalted as we commune with Almighty God with this precious ordinance. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.